Hey all, this is Kiko, Kiko Laredo, and uh, you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you once again to Focus on Metal. So given the timeliness of uh, this particular interview that Richie did, we decided that we would delay our summer break for yet one more week in order to get in a chat with Ron Keel. So back on uh, March 1st, Via Dave Ellefson's EMP label, Ron Keel released his brand new album, Fight Like a Band. And I don't need to tell you very much about it going into this because Richie does such an insane job of talking with Ron that they really get in-depth about the impetus for this album, the making of it, like everything about the album. So there's really uh, not much left for me to talk about on the front end for this sucker. What I will say is that if you want to find out more about uh, the band, where they're playing, show dates, all of that stuff, you can head to ronkeelband.com. And uh, Ron Keel's definitely old school in that regard that he recommends everybody heads right to that website. And from there, you can get all the other links for you know Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. But again, that's ronkeelband.com. And also from there... If uh, you are one of those folks that's into using uh, Patreon, you can also hook right into uh, Ron Keel's Patreon page as well. And like most Patreon programs, got several levels of uh, stuff available to you there. You can uh, just do your basic subscription to uh, his Patreon by a buck ninety nine a month for that one. Or you can go to the all-access level for $6.99 a month. That is what they call the Keelaholic Access. There's also the all-access plus exclusive merch one. That's like $24.99 a month. And it just keeps going on from there. But again, to get to that, just go to ronkeelband.com. So one more thing that I will say about this, and they do talk about it in the interview, is that there's all kinds of stuff on here. You've got kind of the... The uh, more country, metal, cowboy version of Ron Keel on this album, all the way to more of the classic Keel, right-to-rock kind of stuff that he was doing back in the day with Mark Ferrari. So what I thought I would do is play one of the more metal-flavored tracks off of this to lead us into Richie's talk with Ron Keel. Hey, it's doing fantastic, man. Thanks for having me on the show. How are you? I'm good. So where in the, where in the U.S. are you based? I am in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, the wild, wild Midwest. <laughs> I'd say it must be hot there today. Man, I haven't been outside yet, but it's beautiful. And, you know, people uh, will balk at the weather here because the winters are pretty harsh. But 
man, there's 200 beautiful days every year where it's 80 degrees and sunshine, and that looks like one of those days outside today. I'll get out in it eventually. Right now, I'm, I'm busy talking the rock and rocking the talk on your show, Focus on Metal. So, so Ron, how long have you been living there? Is that somewhere like you went, you moved from years ago, or have you been there a long time? Like, or? are we are we on the air now? Are we recording? I'm recording. Yeah, it's pre-recorded. So, oh, good, good, because I got a story for you. <laughs> you just asked me the right question. I moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, four years ago because I was hired to be the band leader and radio personality and entertainment director at a $70 million entertainment complex called Badlands Pond. This play, we had a radio station, a concert venue, how Kiss played here, Disturbed played there, uh, Megadeth played there, so many huge bands, and great shows, and I was the number one voice on the number one rock station in the market, and I had a, a, a huge budget to put together my dream team of a band. I got the guys from my, my bass player, Gino Arce, from uh, Columbus, Ohio, my guitar player, D.C. Cosner, and I brought these guys to Sioux Falls with me to put together my dream band. We had a, a, an unlimited budget, a tour bus, the crew, and the pyro. The dream come true. We're backing up Paul Stanley and Jack Blades from Night Ranger and Kip Winger and Don Dock and Steven Fierstein. And then all of a sudden, abruptly, the business imploded. And it was a huge failure. And they pulled the rug out from under us, pulled the plug, and I'm left with nothing, man. I'm here in Sioux Falls. I love it here. But... I'm left with nothing but the guys in the band. We got together, and, and I thought perhaps some of the guys would move away or go back where they came from. That we all realized how special this band is. This, and, and so we rebranded it as the Ron Keel Band and made a commitment to stay together. And that was a huge step for us because all of a sudden we're on our own. You know, the bus, no, no more bus, man. We had to buy a, a little cheap RV. Uh, but we, we had the music and we had our brotherhood. So. Three weeks, within three weeks of that happening, my wife, Renee, gets diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And all of a sudden, I mean, everybody, most people know, uh, or have been touched in some way by a friend or a family or a loved one or somebody uh, has, cancer has affected almost everyone's life in one way or another. And when you get that diagnosis, everything changes. All of a sudden, you're at war. And my wife has got cancer. So... I went to the guys in the band, and I said, guys, I don't think I can tour this year. You know, I've got to be here with her. She ended up having chemotherapy, radiation, seven surgeries. There's no way I can travel. I've got to be here at home with her as she goes through this process. Mm -hmm. uh, and the guys understood. They I, Again, I thought they were going to leave or go back where they came from. They hung tight. They hung strong, and they hung with me, and they had my back through the whole thing. They were my support group. And I told them, I said, well, we can't tour this year but this is 2017 we can't tour but we can write some songs why don't you guys come over to the house grab a 12 pack and come on over grab your guitars let's write some songs and we wrote this fight like a band album together as a band in my basement about those experiences we were going through and that is the underlying theme of this new album it's about the struggle to survive and succeed and that that theme is is it's like a chain leak chain that, that runs through the all of these songs, the title track especially the the title track and the uh, first single "Fight Like a Band." As you you may have heard, if you've heard the song, you know that first verse. Yeah. Oh yeah, is about the cancer diagnosis, and uh, that uh, it's very emotional to, to experience to write and record and release this new album and have the response be what it has been. The fans are. The fans, the media, everybody gets it. And to me, that's immensely gratifying because I knew it was a special record to me when we were writing and recording it. But to now to have it out there in the in the public world and everybody feels the same way about it I do, it's immensely gratifying. So I want to thank the media and the fans for that response. Hmm. Ron, Ron, did the songs come easy? Because some of the subject matter on this, it's um, it's pretty dark. Uh no song comes easy, man. I'll tell you, some are easier than others. And, you know, it's a, it's a dark, maybe that's the first time I've heard that adjective used in uh, conjecture with this album. But I think, I think 
part of that darkness is the light. Yeah. Um, this, uh, the, the struggle to survive and succeed means that uh, that's your goal, and that's, that's the end result. And we did survive, and we did succeed. So there is a happy ending to that story. Any story is going to have some drama and some darkness along the way. But uh, the, there's one song, the next single, Girls Like Me, is anything but dark. It's oh, yeah, a I know. Fun, yeah. happy summertime song, and, and I can't wait to show everybody the video for this one. It was going to be the first single, but we decided to go with the title track to establish the band's identity, because it really still is a new act. Even though I've got a history and a legacy in the business in 35 years and 3 million albums and all that, it's a new project, a new band, and a lot of people are hearing us for the first time. So we wanted to establish our identity with that title track, a tough, strong, yeah, a little bit dark, yeah, a little bit. Hmm. Um, there's nothing, you know, nothing bright or sunshiny about a cancer diagnosis, but we, we fought through it. And now my wife is healthy and, and cancer-free, and, and we did have a happy ending. I hope that everybody or wish that everybody who has experienced the battle with cancer had a, an ending like ours because, you know, we did uh, survive and we did succeed. Hmm. And personal story, Ron, my sister, I'm 48 next month, she's 47, and she had cancer and she beat it. And after she beat cancer, she had a child. So I've been touched. Oh. I've been touched by cancer. Everybody has, but personally in my family I've, I've i've had a few people ha- had it but there was a light at the at the end of the tunnel for her with, so you know i can i have some empathy well, i have some empathy with you for what you went through well, i'm glad to hear that your story had a happy ending as well that's great yeah and um you know it made us stronger it made us it's more beautiful and we're more in love than we ever were and it also kind of fueled this music not only in the songwriting process when we're digging deep, trying to, I'm trying to pour my heart out in lyrics, but also because I love to create. I love my band. I love to make music. I really love what I do. Can you tell? And she fed off that, too. That excitement, that me having fun and creating and enjoying my life as she was battling for hers, it kind of brightened the house, so to speak. Uh, you know, there, there was music in my house. There always is. And, and that is great medicine. It's great therapy. And my wife and I both love music and you know, who doesn't love music, but to, to go through that process while she was recovering from a chemotherapy treatment or resting up after a surgery or, you know, and, and I'm playing and singing and, and writing songs. And it just, it, there's something that's not dark. It's very bright, positive and energizing about that creative process. So I think it helped us both along the way. Mm. So there's a song on this, Ron, good, good songs, bad times. Um, what bands are for you? Do you break out when you're having bad times that give you good vibes? Uh, you know, usually, usually it's my stuff. You know, and that's not ego talking. It's uh, the fact that I'm really proud of my work. There's several records uh, in my catalog or in my body of work that are they're, they're like my kids. You know, they're, these are my babies, and. You know, they, they keep me company and they love me unconditionally. And, you know, they, I, I put on the, the new Fight Like a Band album uh, or the Streets of Rock and Roll, the Keel Reunion album from 2010, the Metal Cowboy record, uh-huh. uh, Bring It On from Iron Horse 2004, the Alone at Last album. It's so, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm driving, if I'm on a long road trip or something, I will listen to uh, my favorite albums. I've got a, a, a list of them, and you know it always changes because I'm in radio too. I do a weekly radio show, and so I'm always listening to the latest releases or the next artist I'm going to interview. Like I'm sure you've listened to "Buy Like a Band" because it was your job. Yeah, kind of like the job to listen to the new whatever whatever the PR people are sending me and, and offering me interviews with some of these stars. Mm-hmm. And the latest album that really knocked me, uh, knocked my socks off, is this Jeff Tate. Sweet Oblivion record. I don't know if you focus on metal. You've probably heard this. Oh, I've I've had it a couple of weeks. It's superb. My goodness, it's amazing, and I I can't stop listening to it. And I had Jeff on the show this week. The interview's in the can. He's going to be on my radio show this week. We're old friends, and I just very rarely does a new album come along that uh, I just makes me feel that way after at this age after all I've been through. And I'm very jaded, and it's very tough to 
to knock me on my ass. But this new Jeff Bates Sweet Oblivion record does that. I told him in the interview how pissed off I was because he just knocked my album out of the number one slot. It's my favorite album of the year. Just fight like a band. I'm really, really proud of that. That's my child. And I'm sure everybody's got to say that about their kids, right? My, my child is the most good-looking and brightest child in the class, right? So, mm. But I really feel that way about Fight Like a Band. It's my baby, and I do feel that it's it's one of the brightest, most beautiful spots of my entire career. Mm. Ron, do you know how rare you are in the music business that you will actually go and listen to your own stuff after you've recorded it? Because I don't know how many musicians I've spoken to, and once it's done, they never listen to it again unless they have to rehearse it for a tour. Really? That's crazy. Yeah. It's my favorite stuff. I I, I tell you, Richie, I I make music for myself, and I think you have to. That's not not ego. It's not that I love myself so much, really, but I have to create stuff that I like. Why would I create it if I didn't like it? And, you know, I've got to listen to it 10 years from now and be proud and, and, and wrap myself up in it. And I came to the came to terms. You know, like I said, I make music for myself. Then I put it out there and share it with the world. Whoever likes it, whoever enjoys it, that's great. If they don't, that's not my, it's not my problem. My job is to create and to keep creating. And the fact that I sold 3 million records, that means billions of people don't like me or don't want what I do. And I'm cool with that. I'll take whatever... Whatever audience I can generate, if my music resonates with uh, any, anyone, one person or one million people, the numbers don't matter. The music matters. Hmm. Now, Ron, you brought, you brought up Jeff Tate there, and someone actually messaged me to ask you about uh, Queensryche. Uh, did you actually go on tour with them in the 80s? We did a lot of shows, uh, both in the 80s and in recent years. Uh we, in 85, there were a couple of one-off shows with Queensryche when they were first starting out. And then in 86, we did the entire U.S. Rage for Order tour. So, I don't know, it's probably 50 dates on that tour. So, I really got to be friends with, with the Queensryche guys during that point. And Jeff, as well, was very, very, very cool to me. We, we got along great. We would talk about singing and talk about music and developed a friendship back in 1986. And then we ended up doing a lot of shows the past 10 years because we had the same booking agent. So um, our agent would package us together with Queensryche and Kiel. We've done a number of Monsters of Rock cruise events together as well. They were on the cruise a few years back when I was. So, yeah, uh, very. You know, it's really cool to be friends with the bands that you really like. And, you know, I've toured with a, a lot of bands. Luckily, a, a lot of favorites. Bon Jovi, the Slippery When Wet tour. It was amazing. But uh, to tour with Queensryche... You know, that's a band that I really, really like and, and liked back in the day. I really enjoyed their music. I really listened to their records. And I would go out in the audience and watch their show. You know, you get done with a gig and, and you're, you're the opening act and you get to go out and you get to see their show 50 times. It's amazing. Same thing happened with Ronnie James Dio when we did the entire uh, Sacred Heart Tour in Europe in 1986. It was 14 countries. Every show sold out opening for Dio at his peak and then you you know you do your show and then you get to go out in the audience and you get to watch Dio slay the dragon night after night. It was an amazing thrill. So uh, just really blessed to be able to tour with some of my favorite artists that I really want to see as a band so I get to do my gig and it's the best of both worlds. Yeah. Did you get a chance to sit down a lot, Ron, with, with Ronnie and just have one-on-one conversations with the guy? Because I've interviewed... I've, I've interviewed guys that have played with him, that know him, and I've never heard a bad word said about him by any of them. No, I don't think you will. He was a superhuman being. He was uh, really, really good to me and, and really huge in my career at that point when Final Frontier came out to offer us that opening slot on his tour. He could have had any band because the tour was already sold out. You know, he's going to sell out every arena in 14 countries across Europe, and to give us that opportunity was amazing. We co-hosted Headbangers Ball on MTV together. Uh, we we would talk, and he was just always really supportive. I always, man, because I'm, I'm a vocal nut. I will talk to these singers that I admire and try and figure out how they do things. How, how do they warm up? 
or do they warm up? And Ronnie didn't. Ronnie did not believe in warming up at all. When he hit the stage, that first note of that first song was the first note he'd sung that day. I, some guys have, like Steve Whiteman, great singer, and still just delivering a killer, killer product at this stage of the game. Steve Whiteman spends an hour going through this intense regimen of vocal warm-ups and breathing and exercising and drinking just the right fluids at just the right temperature and all this crazy stuff, and it works for Steve. Running James Dio never did any of that. He said, I'm just wasting notes. He, he would so to talk to Roger Daltrey. Great story, Rich. If you got a minute, yeah, yeah, I've got it as long yeah, as you, as long as you want, Ron. Go ahead. Man, meeting some of these singers, I actually got to sing. Sammy Hagar, my favorite all-time frontman. I got to sing. I can't drive fifty-five with Sammy. You know that was pretty cool. But then I got to sing with Roger Daltrey, who is really rock royalty. I mean, Roger Daltrey from the Who. He's up on a pedestal above just about everybody else. And I got to sing with him, and I don't even remember what we sung. Probably my generation or something. I was absolutely starstruck. And then after that, we sat down, and I tend to talk to Roger Daltrey about the voice. You know, he's getting up there in years. He's getting older, and he's telling me what he does to take care of his voice at that age. And You know, Paul Stanley. And I got to sing a duet with Paul Stanley, the, the rock and roll all night. Me and Paul all changed together, singing rock and roll all night. Are you kidding me? It's a dream come true for a kid that grew up being a Kiss fan. So, you know, that's, that's just a huge... I, I think about this, and I tell you the stories like I'm telling them now, and I uh, to me, it's like somebody else's life. It's like a movie that I watched. Like, Man, I want to be that guy. And I realized, wow, I am that guy. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting there, Ron, you bring up, like you're talking about Ronnie not warming up. I remember Scott Warren, his keyboard player. He'd been he's been his keyboard player for, I think from like '93 up until he passed away. He told me that Ronnie would pick up a towel and just scream into it once or twice, and then go up on stage and sing. I I, I was floored. Oh, yeah? I could, I could not believe he didn't warm up. I was like, how can a guy with a voice like that not warm up? And I I, I know some singers singers are obviously they're they're completely different animals, some of them to others, but. That that just blew my mind that Ronnie just didn't warm up at all. Yeah, well, everybody's different. And that's one thing I found out about all. And you got to take a little bit of each. We can't do what everybody else does. Some guys drink. Some guys don't drink. Some guys smoke. Some guys don't smoke. Some guys warm up. Some guys don't. It, 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 everybody has an absolutely different uh, manner of which they prepare to go on stage. There is no right or wrong, but you have to find out what works for you. Hmm. So, so Ron, does the song "Fight Like a Band," right? I I got to use that title to ask a, a couple of questions about it. Um, how naive were you when you got into the music business first professionally? Like, did you have to fight to get what you wanted to keep your sound to get a record deal? Like, how difficult was that in the beginning? For us, being a band from Nashville, Tennessee, moving to Hollywood. In 1981, this is when Motley Crue and Rat, uh, those other bands, ruled the strip. The Hollywood, it's, it's everything and more that you've seen in movies like The Dirt or read about or seen. It was, it was everything and more. But we were the guys from Nashville. We were the hick, redneck metal band from Nashville. We had to fight through all that because the club owners and, and the audiences and everybody was gravitating to bands like Molly Crew and Rat and, and Striper. Now, Striper wasn't around yet. Some, some of these other bands. Great White was, was just getting started. Uh, Quiet Riot was called Dubrow. Kevin Dubrow had a self-titled project that evolved into Quiet Riot when they got a record deal. So this in 1981-82. We were the outsiders, and we had to fight for every little gig. I'll tell you, the we, we took the whole band and the crew and the truck and the van and everything and we moved from Nashville to L.A. They did right in the middle of Hollywood. And yeah, I must have been naive or I wouldn't have gone. It's crazy. What are you doing? You know, going all the way to L.A., going right in the thick of the, the, the flesh, like the front line of the war. You know, it, it's, it's a, it, everybody went there at the time. And I, I was 20 years old and just uh, full of, uh, full of, dreams and, and energy and, and we, we had to fight our way up that club scene. I remember the first show we did in Hollywood we set up the PA and the, we had pyro and we're all dressed up with the makeup and the big hair and the 
the extravagant wardrobe and putting on a show in this club. And there was one person in the club, one guy sitting way in the back, you know, clean cut dude with a beard, um, in the back of the club. And we played for nobody, but we did the whole entire show just like we rehearsed it. The pyro went off, the lights were going, and I'm screaming my guts out, running around like crazy, doing my show. Because that's the only way I ever know, I've ever known how to do it, is full on. I have one gear, and it's all the pedal to the metal. <laughs> so we did the gig, and at the end of the show, I went to that guy sitting in the back of the room. And I said, hey man, I'm, I'm Ron Keel, thanks for being here, hope you enjoyed the show. And he goes, man, that was amazing how you played, like you were playing to a sold-out arena, and it's just one guy. I'm just sitting back here with a beer. I can't believe you did that. And by the way, my name is Joe Benson. I would KLOS radio, and I'm going to play your music. And he did. He started playing Steeler on KLOS radio on the local music show on Sunday night. And that was the huge break I needed for, for that audience that was hungry for hard rock and metal in Hollywood in 1981-82. For them to hear us on KLOS. That was what broke the floodgates wide open. All of a sudden, we're climbing our way up. It took us you know, probably six months to get a gig on this trip. Probably six months of pounding on doors before finally they got sick of hearing from me. Oh, <laughs> give up a gig. Hell, just put them on a Monday night. Put them on midnight on a Monday. And they put us on a midnight on a Monday. And we packed the place. And all of a sudden, people were paying attention. And then bands like Rat and Metallica were opening for us. So it was extremely difficult but I did have some breaks along the way. And that guy, Joe Benson from KLOS, is the only guy in the audience that very first show. Did you have pressure in the beginning to play a lot of covers in your set or were you hell-bent on just doing your original stuff and if it worked, it worked and if it didn't, you tried? No, at the time, there were it was all original. I mean, Steeler only ever did one cover song, ever. And that was Let's Spend the Night Together by The Stones, which we recorded. But that was your token cover song, like everybody had, like, you know, everybody had their, quote, token cover song. That was ours. Um, I played in cover bands when I was in my teenage years, when I was starting to play the bars. Play, you, know, you had to play the covers, and I would play Zeppelin and Montrose and Kiss and ACDC and stuff like that uh, because I was still very green and learning the craft of songwriting. I think even after I got the record deal, and, and I got lucky with a couple of really good songs, Right to Rock. It's a very special song and one of the best pieces I've ever written. But there's a lot of crap in between and a lot of crap with those early records because I was still learning how to write songs, how to craft lyrics and melodies and chords and how to make it work and how to make it how to make it real and how to make it good. So uh, I, I did not feel the pressure to 
And as far as cover songs go, I'd do a set of covers for you right now. I mean, because every time I sing any song, I'm covering that song. Whether I wrote it or somebody else wrote it, it doesn't matter. I'm covering the tune. I get on stage tomorrow night at my gig, and I'm going to go do all these songs from Fight Like a Band. I'm covering Ron Keel Band songs. Whether I wrote them or not, uh-huh. it's, it's irrelevant. Tears of Fire, one of the biggest songs of my career. Mark Ferrari, my guitar player from Keel, wrote that. It's my song, man. I've been singing it for 35 years, and it's part of my life. It's part of my history. I love it. I love singing it, and it doesn't matter if I wrote it or not. Hmm. Now, I had someone on a while back, and they had a lot of record company interference in the 80s when they were blowing up. And he said that the band would have been fine if they had been left alone. Do you go along with that? Like, did you have a lot of record company people or people from the outside trying to push you here and pull you there? It happened to everybody, except one exception who I'll tell you about. It happened to everybody. They would find these amazing diamonds in the rough. And they try and polish them. You know, they take you, they sign you, and then they try and make you into something you're not. I thought that was crazy. Why would you buy a chair and then try and turn it into a bed or turn it into a table? It's a, it's a freaking chair, man. Sit the hell down. And they did that to all of us. They tried, and that's part of the reason the whole scene died. Because the record companies would find a band and they'd hire the same producer to make their records. They'd hire the same video guy to make the videos. They'd hire Ray Brown to make everybody's clothes. Jesus Priest, Molly Crew, and Keel. And we all had the same guy making all our own clothes. There's one guy who did all the videos. So you end up, everybody starts looking the same and sounding the same because they're trying to put you through that formula and that funnel. And it killed, it killed not only my career in the 80s, it killed a lot of careers in the 80s. How stupid is that? You don't buy a house. And then just turn it upside down. You bought it because you like the house. So the only exception, as I told you, I would tell you about the exception to that rule, was Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses got signed, Collider signs them, huge deal, big money, and they're spending, at the time, it was $1,800 a day for the studio. At the time, that was a lot of money. That's still a lot of money, $1,800 a day. And Guns N' Roses was allowed to be who they were. If they, if they were messed up on whatever substance of the day they happened to be messed up on, they didn't show up or they fell asleep trying to play or whatever train wreck was going on, just let them do it. Let them be themselves. You know, we'll just pay another $1,800 tomorrow and see if we get a track. And they let Guns N' Roses be Guns N' Roses and look at the result. One of the most iconic rock bands of, of that or any other era. And yeah, it was wild. It was reckless. It was crazy. It was... You know, you can't take Guns N' Roses and try to turn them into Van Halen. But it's, it worked for, for GNR, you know, and that was the, the that's the only one that I saw from personal perspective and experience being a part of that scene at the time. And knowing those guys, Eric, man, I, I actually interviewed Guns N' Roses to produce their, their debut. When they got signed, Vicki Hamilton hooked me up with a meeting with Guns N' Roses. I go over to their apartment they're sharing in Hollywood. And they're all, they're a mess. <laughs> they look like they had showered in weeks. They were just sitting around the couch like they were sogged out on something. I'm meeting with them and talking to them about possibly producing them. And I left that meeting and go, man, these guys are losers, man. They're never going to do anything. <laughs> but Kalander saw that and I'm sorry that I let them be them. But that was a pretty cool story. And you now that's, uh, just like any relationship, when you meet someone, fall in love, it never works when you try and change who they really are. If you want to, you know, but love can change us. Love can, can, can work miracles. And it has in my life. Uh, my wife knows she's not going to change me. She's not who I am. This is what I do. It's who I am. And if you try and change me, I'm not going to be the guy you fell in love with anyway. So, you know, this, uh, that, that's why that business uh, crumbled in the late 80s. People that had enough of that cookie cutter, pop metal, big hair, BS, and they turned to first Guns N' Roses and that sleazy, sleaze rock of the late 80s, and then they turned to grunge. Uh, mm. with, uh, the, 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 that scene with Pearl Jam and Nirvana and all that that, that took over in the 90s. 
or they went to country music because Garth Brooks was you know, exploding and country music was the rage. Country and grunge owned the 90s. Metal was dead for a decade. Mm. I'm glad it's back. I'm glad it's back and I'm glad it's strong and, and it's, it's survived because not the fashion, not that crap that the record companies were pushed through, but it survives because of the music and the song. The, the, the musicianship in metal is absolutely amazing. You've got to, you know, you've got to have that guitar virtuoso. You've got to have that, that athletic drummer that's just doing amazing things behind the kit. You've got to have that screaming lead singer that's just you know, larger than life, a rock star, screamer, David Lee Roth, whatever. So those songs hmm. about the wild and the young. This is the music of the young. And as long as there are young people who want to get wild, there's always going to be hard rock, arena rock, and metal. Mm. So, Ron, why do you think they let Guns N' Roses stay the way they were? Because if you look on Geffen, they had a lot of, there was a lot of, you look at Aerosmith, Aerosmith were on Geffen, right? They were a massive band in the mm-hmm. 70s, and then when they got back together in the 80s and they signed them, they got in Desmond Child, they got in all these outside songwriters, and Guns N' Roses were on Geffen, and you said they let them be, and I'm just curious, do you have an opinion why? That's a good question. I don't, you know, this Collider's genius, uh, his ability to see what an act needs at that stage of the game. Now, Aerosmith was trying to make a comeback. They had already had their day. And they had already, they were already a Hall of Fame act before they signed with Kevin. Collager, I'm guessing, saw what they needed to resurrect their career. And he probably saw what Guns N' Roses needed to launch their career. That's a brilliant director. That's a, that, that's a guy who knows what he's doing in, 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 in any business. That's why uh, Steven Spielberg is a, uh, uh, an amazing filmmaker because he knows what each story wants. He doesn't want to continue to make Indiana Jones every film, you know, Star Wars, whatever. He knows what each film needs. And Kaladin knew what those acts needed at that time to be themselves. Now, uh, there were some, you know, there were times when we had outside songs thrust upon us. Some of them were great. And Somebody's Waiting was a song that the record company pitched to me and said we, we think you ought to consider doing this song and I listened to it immediately I heard it and I wanted to sing that song man it's what a great tune um, so it, sometimes it could be a blessing and just to, to work with songwriters like Desmond Child Steve Diamond who is a, a Grammy winning songwriter they put me together with Steve Diamond we wrote a couple of songs one of which ended up being the title track on the second Vixen album Rev It Up Yeah, Steve and I wrote that song together and uh, we also wrote a song for the Larger Than Live album on Keel. And you know, I learned so much from that collaboration with Steve because he's, he's a, a hit songwriter. And to sit across the, 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 the room from him with a guitar and a notebook and a tape recorder, just a, a, an amazing experience. So I, I value that. Uh, and the collaboration that I did with my guys, you know, Gino Arce, Dave Cawthorn, Dakota Scott and Jeff, the Rev Kohler on drums, the guys in the Ron Keel band, that collaboration that I did with them on this album, I, I opened my heart and opened my songs and opened my notebook to those guys. And they, they bought into my method of creating songs. And we wrote together. We, uh, created these amazing musical passages that are the glue that binds all of my verses and courses together. So, that uh, learning to collaborate was a huge step for me. And on my previous album, Metal Cowboy, I wrote everything. I've feel the album in my career that I can look at it and say all songs written by Ron Keel. And it was great. I, I love it. I love that challenge and I love those songs. But I also love the fact that Fight Like a Band is a real team effort, a real group uh, recording from, from the writing process on through the final mix. Hmm. So, Ron, you got a song on this that I love called "Old School." Um, how, how, because you 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 say it yourself through the whole song. You're an old school guy, right? Um, yeah. How tough was that though in the '90s for you? Because 
you were from a previous generation. Was, was that decade, decade tough for you to play the music the you wanted? Yeah, to, to play the music that you wanted to play, that it was seen as like. Yes, to be honest. To be honest with you, Richie, that's a great question. So you got some great questions you're firing at me today, and that's a new one and a good one. The 90s, for me, were absolutely fantastic because, I, man, I lost everything. At the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, all of a sudden, it's all gone. There's no more record deal. There's no more sports cars, no more beach houses. My family was in, uh, in disarray. My marriage was crumbling. Uh Every I lost everything, and, and I found my sanctuary when I took away all the bells and whistles and the money and the fame and the glitz and the glory and the glamour and all that. I grabbed a guitar, and I started creating and writing songs, and it ended up being country music. And I know we're, the focus is on metal, but this is part of the metal cowboy. This is where the cowboy came from. Uh-huh. And that music, that music saved me at the time because I didn't need anything but a story, a melody, and some chords underneath it, and I could create, and I could make a living. All of a sudden, country music is, and I could go on stage, and I'm entertaining people at the rodeo or the roadhouse, honky tonk, and I'm still singing wild party tunes about drinking beer and chasing women. And man, it was a fantastic time to be learning that art form and embracing country music. I'm a, I was born in the South. I, I was born in Georgia. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee when I was 17. I told you earlier in the interview the story about how we redneck metal guys from Nashville moved to L.A. Uh-huh. So the South was, was part of my blood, part of my DNA. My father was a country guy to the core. He had played guitar with some of the greats back in the 40s and 50s, Hank Sr. and uh, Ernest Tubb. And so my dad was... was country music to the core and i was raised listening to all that stuff on the construction site or you know around the house my dad was cranking up merle haggard johnny cash uh, so I, I i had a, a i had that in me i had that in my team but that uh, country music saved my life at the time because it gave me a way and an outlet to create when everybody else all my my peers in rock and metal were wondering what, what the hell are we going to do now they're going to cut their hair and they're going to go get a real job I just kept letting my hair grow, put on a cowboy hat, went out, played music, and created songs. And uh, it was a blast. And also during the '90s, I got to continue to satisfy my metal hunger with projects like Saber Tiger, which is the heaviest album of my entire career. I was uh, hired to do this album session with Akihito Kinoshita in Sapporo, Japan who was a huge, he was like the Ingbe Momstein of, of Japan. He's a huge guitar star over there and wanted an American singer. They hired me for the session, and it was brutal, progressive metal, screaming my guts out. So I was still, I was still satisfying my metal urge while I was, I'd go back and do the country gig when the session was over. And so I, I did have the best of both worlds in the 90s, and I found that balance in between country music and metal somewhere is the domain of the metal cowboy and that's where i feel most comfortable you can call it southern rock if you will uh i call it cowboy rock because it's got that it, it, it does rock i like a band is a rock album but there's a cowboy side to it too mm. so ron i just have a couple of questions before i leave you go um it's the song rock and roll guitar um can you remember your first guitar absolutely i remember both of them the first one was uh and very cheap acoustic guitar that my parents had given my sister as a Christmas gift and she didn't have any interest in it and I it was up in the closet for years and years and years with no strings and I remember I put strings on it and I had seen a, a friend of mine, I was a drummer at the time I played drums and I sang Not re- I didn't sing very well but I was a really good drummer <laughs> I, I, I played uh, in a group and we took a break and the guitar player sat there and played Stairway to Heaven on an acoustic guitar. And all the girls, we had, of course we had girls watching us rehearse, and all the girls just gravitated around him, and they were just spellbound by this guitar player. The chicks loved him. And he was playing Stairway to Heaven. I thought, well, that's how I get chicks. I'm going to put strings <laughs> on that old guitar, and I'm going to learn how to play Stairway to Heaven, and I'll get chicks. <laughs> and I did. Richie, I, so I put, put, put some nylon strings on that acoustic guitar, and the first day, I actually... 
learned how to play Stairway to Heaven, not correctly, but you could tell what song it was. I mean, it was a bastardized version. Today, I know how to play it properly, but that was the first day I ever picked up a guitar. Uh, seriously. And I, I started playing Stairway to Heaven, and, and then I started writing songs. And I was trying to tell the guitar players in my band about the ideas in my head, and I didn't have any way to communicate those other than to being forced into playing guitar. And learning to play uh, for about eight months, and then one night, I'm doing a gig at an amusement park, kind of a Disneyland kind of gig, and a friend of mine from school who played drums was in the audience, and I said, hey, dude, come on up and, and sit in on the kit. I'm going to go out front and play Creedence Clearwater or something on the guitar. Man, I, I put on that guitar. I strapped it on. I got out front. I set her stage. I, man, that, that's just where I belong, and that's where I've been ever since, is center stage. Uh, sometimes with a guitar, sometimes without. Speaking uh. of that song, rock and roll guitar, that is, uh, that's the story of a guitar that yeah. changes hands from one musician to the next, from a pawn shop to a kid who buys the guitar, who grows up to be a star, and then passes on the guitar to the next generation. That's one of those story songs that I love being able to tell. Uh, and uh, Certainly, probably one of the heaviest songs on the record. I think it, that's that's metal, right? I think it's kind of a oh, yeah. metallic song. Mm-hmm. There's some playing in there too. So, uh, really proud of that one. Yes. Yeah, so, so, Ron, do you do you collect guitars? Are you someone that uh, that has like fifty or sixty of them in your house, or, or are you okay with like three or four of them, and you just have one that you like to write on? Man, I I, I I'm not a collector. I I have a couple of instruments that are extremely close to me, and uh, for the most part. I, I they come and go, and I can't tell you how many guitars I have. Uh, I don't know. My wife tries to count them every now and then, but they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> I'm looking at five of them in the living room right now, leaning up against the wall. There's a bunch of them downstairs. There's some outside in the garage. They're everywhere. I, I, I do have a, a very close attachment. There's only two guitars in my collection that I wouldn't sell. Anything else is disposable. I would sell it, or sometimes you know, auction them off and donate the money to charity. I've done that quite a bit. Um, so I'll, we'll sign a guitar that, you know, it's got special history behind it. Uh, donate it to, uh, to, to, to a, a good cause. So I, I'm cool with that. I, I do uh, love these new vintage guitars that I'm playing. It's a company called Vintage Guitars, Vintage Guitars US, I believe is the website. And uh, they make these uh, new instruments with a classic old school feel. So I'm really, really loving these vintage guitars. And I play Dean acoustic guitars. I, I, I buy the, uh, I get the four or $500 guitars because I tear them up. I break them. They go on the road. They do a lot of traveling. They're, they're getting tossed around by the baggage handlers. And, you know, I, I'm rough on stuff, man. I break things. So I, I don't, I try not to get too attached to the guitars. Yeah, yeah. I just have one question, Ron, about your book and then, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, was there any particular aspect of your life that you, you wanted to address in the book that maybe a lot of people didn't know? There is a lot in the book. But there's a lot that I left out of the book that I would love to address. And you know, a lot of it has to do with that long 17-year-old, 17-year marriage to the mother of my children. And because there was some, some dark, ugly stuff in that marriage. And the thing about my book, Richie, is that I didn't throw anybody under the bus but me. It's not a trash story. It is, uh, you know, I'm not talking crap about ex-bandmates or ex-wives or anybody. I throw myself under the bus pretty hard, and I come clean for all the bad decisions, all the bad habits, whether it's drugs or adultery or all the crap that I did when I was younger. Yeah, I cop to it. But I did not throw my ex-wife under the bus. She's the mother of my children. But that's a whole book in itself, man. I'll tell you right now, and, and uh, I just didn't want to do that. I, that's, that's the mother of my kids. She's off limits. And leave her alone. And I say that in the book. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff. Now I'm reading the audiobook and releasing the audiobook a chapter at a time on my site, patreon.com slash Ron Keel. And as I read the book audibly through the microphone as I'm creating the audiobook, I have to relive it. And there's a lot, especially in the early years, that I'm not proud of. Um, and it was, some of it was painful to read You know, as I'm speaking into a microphone and doing the audiobook. Some of it's very painful and uh, not not happy with that. If I had it to do over again, I would do things different. But the book is honest. It is honest and it's real. But there's a lot that I left out. A lot of negative stuff 
said, I just don't feel it's part of it's a relevant part of the story. I'd like to, to stay positive and just be thankful for the friendships and the opportunities. And yeah, that marriage was a, a train wreck, but I got two beautiful kids and, and now grandchildren from that. And um, I look at the positives and it, it made me who I am today. Mm. So Ron, you're still doing the radio show. I am doing a syndicated Streets of Rock and Roll broadcast every week. That's the name of the show, Streets mm-hmm. of Rock and Roll. Uh, it, it allows me to send the show out to stations all over the world and still maintain my touring schedule. I did the DJ gig and loved it for a couple of years. So I guess it was, that's part of the reason I was brought here was to spearhead that KBAD 94.5 FM. And I was the uh, midday mayhem. I was the number one voice on the number one station in the market. Literally just a fantastic experience learning live radio, putting on a show every day, live on the air. But with my schedule, there's no way I could continue to, to, to do that four hours a day. It's like anybody who's got a real job, just clock out for four hours and play music and talk to your friends. You're not going to get a lot done. So <laughs> I had to go back to the syndicated format, and now we're on episode, uh, what, episode 14 this week with Jeff Tate from Queensryche. Uh, I'm really proud of the show, and, and it's on a number of uh Online stations and my FM anchor station here in Sioux Falls, 93.3 FM, Sunny Radio, and, and a bunch of other stations as well. All those links are, are on my website at ronkeel.com. Hmm. I have an, uh, one question about the radio show, Ron, when you're interviewing somebody. Now, say like Jeff Tate, you, you knew Jeff years ago. So you're on the other side now interviewing him. And Do you ever find yourself thinking, I could ask him that? but I might put him in a tough spot because you know something that maybe a lot of people wouldn't about him from the past. Maybe something happened on yeah. tour, some tour story. Is that difficult sometimes to separate yourself that your job really is, you know, for the listeners as well as the guy you're talking to, but it can be tough sometimes to ask the, the questions you want. Another great question, Richie. Well done, man. And yes, it is difficult, but I feel it's my responsibility when I'm on the other side of the microphone, I'm in the media. And it's my job to deliver compelling content. Now, whether it's dirt or something that uh, sometimes I'll find these friends, artists, will be a little bit looser with me because we are friends. We've known each other for years. Guys will start talking about, not Jeff Tate, for instance, but other guys that I've interviewed in the context of my radio career They'll talk to me about their bout with cancer or their divorce or how much money they're making or how much money they're not making. And they'll give me, st- and I'm not going to dig that out of them. It's, uh, if, if it's my job to make them feel like they're having a conversation with a friend and they know when we're recording, just like I know that you're recording this and you're broadcasting this, I, I, I should probably not say anything that I don't want the world to hear. Hmm. And I do enjoy that aspect. Now, much, very much like a sports broadcaster, an athlete who is a star quarterback, for instance, goes to the broadcast booth when his career, his playing career is over. Now he's an announcer. He's on the air. He's got to criticize his former team. He's got to be objective. He can't just be a homer all the time and talk good stuff about his old teammates. And it's very much the same way as a broadcaster, as you know. I, I do have to dig deep sometimes to get that compelling uh, content, and I have to call it like I see it. When I when a, when a band has a split, for instance, we've seen that in, in a number of my peers and my friends. Whether it's Queensrÿche, a perfect example, when they had their big nasty ugly split, and Jeff was uh, ousted from the band, and, and uh, I actually broke the news on my show that Todd Latore was the new singer in Queensrÿche. And Todd did my show the next day after he did his first gig with Queensrÿche. They were called Rising West at the time because they couldn't use the name. Todd hmm. was on my show the next day making that announcement. And I'm, and, I, and I'm still friends with both. And the Great White Camp is another example because you've got Jack Russell's Great White and you've got Mark Kendall's Great White. And I'm lucky I've been able to maintain a friendship with both. But when it comes time to interview them, I can't pull those punches. I had to ask Mark in my latest interview with Mark Kendall from Great White, and I thought that the possibility of Jack ever coming back. I mean, when you're changing singers and you're, you know, Terry Luce is getting boot and you're bringing on Mitch Malloy, did it ever occur to you that you could make the fans happy and make 
five times as much money if you just get Jack back in the band. So I had to ask him that. Uh, that's my job as a person in the media, and you're going to get that content on my radio show. It's not me just you know, lip service to, to my friends. It's my job. As your job is, and you've done well today, digging some good stuff out of me. Your questions and your, your perspective on my music and, and rock and roll in general has been very much appreciated throughout the course of this interview, Richie. You've done great. Been a fantastic conversation, man. Thank you. Yeah, so Ron, do you want to give out all the social media sites where people can get the album, get in touch with you or the band, and see where you're going on tour? Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. And that's too much. Uh, there's one site, there's one place you need to go. It's seven letters, ronkeel.com. That has all the links to Facebook and Twitter and my Patreon subscription, my membership site, where you can join uh, and get the exclusive inside content, the uh, video, audio, personal interaction, live chats online, and, and so much more at patreon.com slash ronkeel and ronkeel.com. Now, there's uh, obviously links on that. You can watch the videos. You can go follow me on social media and all that, but I'm a firm believer in having that one stronghold. That's my fortress of solitude online at ronkeel.com where you can find all the stuff that I'm all about. Thanks, Ron. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'll leave you go outside now. My, my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for, uh, for the great discussion, the great questions, and uh, all your support for playing the new music, man. No Appreciate problem, it. Ron. If you get up to Boston area, I'll say hello to you. Okay, I can't wait. All right, Ron. Take care of yourself. Have a good rest of the day. All right, buddy. You too. All right, bye. You too. Thanks. of his classic track the right to rock on the uh, fight like the band release and i just couldn't resist playing it so big thanks to ron keel for coming on focus on metal and spending a crap ton of time with richie talking about uh, past history of keel as well as the brand new release fight like a band and like i said you want to find out more about ron keel show dates and everything else that uh, he is up to then you want to head to ronkeelband.com so as i mentioned at the beginning of the show we had delayed our annual summer break for a few weeks usually we cut it off at the end of june and then take july off but we had all these timely things we wanted to get out so we delayed for three weeks but uh as of this week as of this show we will be heading on to our annual summer break kicking back and enjoying stuff for the next uh, three or four weeks or so and uh, just kind of recharging the batteries. I know during that time, really looking forward to going and seeing the uh, Massachusetts tour stop of Maiden's Legacy of the Beast tour. So I know I've got that one to do and uh, who knows whatever else I will get up to. 
And as I always remind you when these breaks come up, if you're missing Focus on Metal in a new episode, you can always go up to focusonmetal.net, go over to the episodes page, and there is literally years of shows for you to download. So maybe you'll find an artist or a subject in there that you hadn't heard yet, and you can download that and enjoy that. Just kind of fill the gap in during our summer break. But uh, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, thanks for listening. And until we talk to you again, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.